So the the concept that we have of the ending of the year in 2015 and we're about to begin 2016 and we could look at it as just another day, not make anything out of it. Or we could also engage the convention and say, well, the old is passing away and the new is about to begin and, and use this concept of the new to begin again. And to, as you would probably all be aware that we're later on the evening going to participate together, those who wish to, in the ritual of forgiveness and aspiration, aiming to let go of whatever has may have happened in the past that we regret and resolutely determine to orient our hearts to take responsibility for this life and direct it towards something that we feel is really worthy. This is this conscious act of aspiration is something that we can do. We're not, we're not victims to our conditioning. Sometimes we might feel that way. We certainly all have plenty of conditioning, some of it helpful, some of it not helpful. And if we're not careful, if we don't look carefully and feel in an intentional way, we can fall for the idea that we are just that. We're victims of our conditioning. We can't change anything. Well, thankfully, we have the Buddha's teaching, which says that it's not like that. He realized to the fullest extent the potential of being a human being, which is that we can direct this heart and mind, we can direct all aspects of our life towards that which is wise and compassionate. And this is the work, or the spiritual work, that we here choose to do. All of us gathered here this evening because we have confidence, we have faith in this work. But it is still work. It's something that we need to intentionally imply ourselves to because the conditions around us are not necessarily always conducive. In fact, it gets very confusing at times. and The increase in, in uh, sophisticated technology it promises to make life easier, but mm, the uh, reality doesn't seem to be like that. The, um, even in a little rinky-dink monastery like ours, the amount of emails that we have coming in, the, the stuff we have to deal with, and the bureaucracy, and the insurance policies, and uh, issues, and that's in a renunciate community. So what do everybody else have to deal with? Uh, life is not easy, and I, um complex social issues that there are around, the apparently intractable problems of the world, the environmental ones, which you know, there are still some people holding out with the belief that they're not happening. You know, the 
geopolitical issues that there are around, so convoluted, and how do you sort it all out? And so sometimes it does feel like it's all too much, and this is the human predicament. That wherever we are, whether it's in a complex technological age like ours, it feels too much. 2,500 years ago in India, it still felt too much. Human beings are faced with situations that we don't know how to handle. We feel, if we're not careful, we can feel hopeless. So how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we meet that experience when it comes to us? And so there are times when we default to just... Uh, our conditioning and we become impatient with things, we get caught up in anger and we get shaken and disturbed by the environment we find ourselves in. Well, the uh, skillful thing to do from the Buddhist perspective is to not just hide our heads in the sand and believe that it's all going to be all right sometime in the future, but to engage our ability that as human beings we all have ability. We have these faculties. And we have the physical faculties of seeing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and also cognizing. And throughout all human history, human beings have refined down these spiritual faculties. The last few hundred years we've been working on the mental faculty and we're really, really, really clever at thinking now and manipulating concepts and Ever since the advent of the alphabet it's, uh, and people learnt to read, we've become really skilled at that. Uh, prior to that, human beings were very skilled at feeling and hearing and you could look at some, some footprints in the ground and you could read all sorts of information from that or you could feel the wind on your skin and you could tell what's happening or you could hear the rustling of the leaves and it would give you all sorts of information. Well, we're not so good at all those kind of things anymore, but we can really think. But these are not the only faculties we have, and this is what the Buddha was alerting us to. He said there's also the spiritual faculties. And our work, if we have the intuition that there is a spiritual dimension and the spiritual dimension has something to do with how we meet the experience of hopelessness when it comes to us. If we have a suspicion that the spiritual dimension is relevant, then our work is to hone down these, these spiritual faculties. And, and that's where our hope lies. And so the, the work of somebody with an intuition or an inclination to cultivate the spiritual life is to recognize the spiritual faculties. Of course we have the physical faculties, but also there's these, this inner dimension. We're not rejecting the physical faculties, you know? not simply closing our eyes and putting wax in our ears and blocking our nose. and We're not denying the world. The world is the way it is, but there's this other dimension the spiritual dimension, and the Buddha pointed towards this. If we want to cultivate the skillful form of hopefulness, that means we can meet the apparent hopelessness that all human beings are obliged to deal with from time to time. I've been contemplating a uh, verse in the Dhammapada recently, um, 
a very hopeful verse where the Buddha, as verse number 95, where the Buddha says there are those who discover that they can completely abandon all confused reactions. There are those who discover they can completely abandon all confused reactions, become as patient as the earth, unintimidated by anger, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. Now, the Buddha's not speculating. You can read all sorts of books around about speculating on what's real. The Buddha's talking about realisation beyond speculation. and The teachings and the example we have from the Buddha and all the great teachers is that there are those who discover, there are those who realise that they can abandon all confused reactions. In other words, you can live in this world and not be defined by the chaos of the world. Whatever it is, whether it's the cryptocurrency and the blockchain, which I don't know how people can get their head around that stuff, but they, they can, and it's going to transform our whole economy probably, and and the complexities of Syria or, or the relationship difficulties that we're all, all of us obliged to deal with, whatever the apparent complexity of life, if we are in touch with this inner orientation, the outer orientation is the, the myriad complexities of life. It all looks too much. If we're not careful, we... The, the chaos can threaten to overwhelm us. Now, some people deal with the threat of, of apparent chaos by clinging to beliefs. As I said before, belief that everything's going to be all right in the future sometime, maybe when some super being comes to save us all, or when you die, or... Or if you meet the right person, the right expert, the right spiritual expert, or the right relationship, or you have the right amount of money, or the right piece of technology, they have faith and confidence in something out there in the future. Now that's a normal functioning of the human mind, but the Buddha wanted us to question that. So that's, that's not the only way to orient our lives. We have these spiritual faculties, which means that we can look inwards and we can ask questions inwards. And we can see that hopefulness is something we can cultivate. It's inwardly. We can feel. What does hopefulness feel like? Is this this wholesome hopefulness or is this naive hopefulness? There's different types of hopefulness. The kind of hopefulness that I was referring to about what's going to happen in the future maybe is born out of identifying with fantasies of the future. But there's another hopefulness which is born out of connecting with our ability, our ability as human beings to do something about this condition. Our ability as human beings to recognise the spiritual faculties of faith, of energy, of mindfulness, of concentration, of discernment. We have the six faculties outwardly exercised and we have the five spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, discernment. To recognise these, what does faith feel like? 
What is it like when we have faith when we don't have faith? What is naive faith? What is in, informed faith? When we have energy, I mean spiritual energy, I don't mean physical energy from taking super amounts of vitamins, but the spiritual energy, interest energy, the energy born of interest, interest in reality, interest in discovery, interest in questioning. What does that feel like? Mindfulness, when there's mindfulness, when there's not mindfulness. And I don't just mean a technique that we might have learned, but the, the, the Buddha described mindfulness as that quality of watchfulness that you would see... He talked about the gatekeeper, the city walls and some gates. You come into the city or go out of the city through this gate and the wall and there's the gatekeeper standing there watching who comes in, who goes out, what sort of character they are, what are they up to, that that watchfulness. And when we have that watchfulness, what ability does that give us? When we don't have it, how does that disable us? So recognizing these spiritual faculties and then cultivating them. Concentration. When there's the ability to to steady the heart and mind. And what type of steadiness do we have? Do we have that exclusive, contracted, focused, narrow-minded concentration which says, leave me alone, I'm going to get spiritual? Or do we have the inclusive, expanded, Steadiness of consciousness that has been inclusive. Discernment. The willingness to question as opposed to the perhaps uh, undeveloped choice to just believe. You know, like believe that somebody's taking care of us. Fair enough when we're we're children. It's important that children believe mum and dad are going to look after us, but there's a certain point you reach around 16, 17, something like that, where you're supposed to get the idea, well, no, actually, I'm going to have to start taking care of myself. And as true as that is on the material level, well, similarly, on the level of the big questions of life, who's going to tell me what this is all about? What is going to happen when I get old, when I die? What really matters more than anything else in life? Who's going to give me this? If we're still holding on to the uninformed, uninspected belief that somebody else is responsible for this information, for this level of security, if somebody else is going to do it for us, well, that's something more we can do about that. What the Buddha was encouraging us to do was to develop this spiritual faculty of discernment, which means we're interested in asking the most difficult questions. And and faith and discernment actually support each other. Recognising these spiritual faculties and then honing them down. So if we orient our work, our spiritual work in this way, we start to get a feeling for what the Buddha and the great teachers were pointing to, which is that even though the world can appear really chaotic at times, that is apparent reality. Behind that, there's actuality. There's dhamma, the Pali word. There's truth, there's reality. And when we're getting fooled, when we're getting fooled, it's not by actuality. We're not fooled by actuality. We're fooled by apparent reality. This is a really helpful uh, concept. Yeah. And again, in terms of how to 
inform ourselves, how to prepare ourselves to meet the apparent chaos, the apparent conflicts, the ambiguities, the apparent impossibility of life without defaulting to our conditioning. How do we do that? Well, this is a really helpful concept to contemplate. Apparent reality and actuality. The image that the Buddha gave us was, he said, it's like you're walking down a track and and you think you see a snake and you freak out. There's a snake, a poisonous snake. It turns out to be a piece of rope. It wasn't a snake. There was nothing to worry about. There was absolutely nothing to worry about. And isn't this so often the case for us that we think that something is intractable we think that something's utterly impossible and then we react to it accordingly. That's apparent reality. Actuality is there's, there's a solution to this. There's often, this is so often the case. Yeah. And we get fooled over and over again. Ajahn Tiridamo, um writes a blog. I don't know if any of you follow Ajahn Tiridamo's blog. He, um, you may not know Ajahn Tiridamo used to be the abbot of this monastery and then he went on to start the monastery in Switzerland where he was the abbot for many years, then took over the monastery in Wellington in New Zealand and these days he's um, pretty itinerant, moving around the place, not settling anywhere and feeling very good about it and enjoying his freedom and sometimes writes these interesting articles on what he calls Turidamo's ramblings, if you want to do a search for that. And Anyway, his most recent rambling was where he's been staying for the rains retreat in this little monastery and on the banks of the Mekong River in the northeast of Thailand. And he was explaining how he, uh, he's living in a cave right up high and he has to walk for about an hour before he goes on his arms round in the morning. And it's, uh, it's still dark when he leaves the cave and about four o'clock in the morning and and uh, during the rainy season, the track is very slippery and it keeps changing and because there's not a, light, a lot of light around, he was explaining how several times he was shot by snakes in front of him on the footpath only to realise that it was a, it was a tree root. Was a, I mean, there's, there's this one... He thought it was a, what's called a banded crate. I don't know if you know. It's a pretty uh, nasty little snake, and uh, he thought he'd, he was just about to stand on it, and it turned out to be a tree root with some specks of water on it, and fooled again. And, and he explains how over and over again he he thinks this has got to be a snake, and it's not a snake; it's a tree root. Although also he does point out that uh, he does mention, and this is important that one day he very nearly did <laughs> put his foot on uh, what's called a, um, a Malayan pit viper, which is a really nasty piece of work, except for your human being, and it bites you. And uh, he goes into some detail of how you come to terms with that. So it's not to say that there aren't snakes and that everything is a bit of rope, but do we have the faculty, do we have the faculty, have we trained our faculties our spiritual faculties, to withhold the assumptions that we have about what we see, the apparently intractable problems. 
the problem with Syria. What do you do with that? You know, you decide with this bunch, well, they don't look so good, and you decide with that bunch, and they don't look so good, and, you know, these other people want to just go and bomb the hell out of everybody, and that's, you know, seriously unintelligent, and that hasn't worked in the past. Why do they keep thinking like that? You don't want to side with them either. What do you do with it about? You just go and watch television or eat something? You know, what do you do with it? Yeah. It's apparently intractable. Well, a few years ago, those of you who have been here for a while, we had this apparently impossible issue with our wastewater disposal. It went on for ages, and the neighbours were not cooperating, and then the trustees paid some expert a huge amount of money to tell us what we already knew, which is there wasn't a solution. Thank you very much. And, yeah, it was... It was threatening. You know, we, we've got this marvellous place here, and it was looking like we couldn't stay. This was, you know, this was a significant thing. wastewater. You've got to deal with it in a responsible manner. And fortunately, we had a member of the community who was somebody skilled in having well-informed, mature hopefulness. You know, he was positively oriented towards what was possible. Not the naive form of hopefulness, which is, as I said, is clinging at fantasies, but the informed, educated hopefulness that is positively oriented towards what's possible. And he just didn't accept that there's no solution to this. And it looks like there's no solution, but he didn't accept that. And one day, sure enough, he'd been out, I think he was hiking uh, through one of these lovely parks that they have in this country and they're staying in a, in a uh, hostel up there, you know, an area of outstanding natural beauty where, of course, the hostel was obliged to take responsibility for everything that happened, you know, like suddenly get an influx of, of 60 hikers, all the waste that they produce, you've got to take responsibility for it on a very small area of land, right? That sounds like us, right? And sure enough, in the middle of the night, this guy suddenly woke up and saw it. These guys have got a solution and brought the solution back here and we've got the same solution now. Thank you very much. It's not a problem. It's hard work for those who have to manage the sewage system, but it's, it's solved. Yeah. So over and over again, and this is worth really, really taking on board, over and over again, life appears impossible. How do we see beyond apparent reality to actuality? That's what the Buddha said. There are those who completely abandon all confused reactions, become as patient as the earth, unintimidated by anger. You don't throw your arms up and say, all these mad fundamentalists, what are we going to do with them all? The reality is we can do better than that. We don't have to assume that this is impossible. What do we do about this? how How do we get interested in this in the appropriate way? So the appropriate kind of interest, the kind of interest that we're educated and conditioned towards is more information. You need more information about the problem. Well, the Buddha told us to go in the opposite direction. Thinking is a great tool. You know, we've done wonderful things with thinking. It's, It's really helped us a lot. But there's other faculties that we have that we can develop. We can cultivate a feeling investigation. Now, a feeling awareness is very different from a conceptual awareness. Conceptual awareness, you know, you can listen to your thoughts and you can hear 
the silence before the thought, then there's the thought, and then there's silence after the thought, and the space around the thought, and that's helpful. You know, we don't maybe get so defined by our conditioned thinking. And I don't know about you, but I'm familiar with having some really wacky thoughts, really wacky, pass through my head. And if we don't have any space around them, they really undermine your confidence. So learning to watch our thoughts, listen to our thoughts, get some perspective on our thoughts is helpful. But perhaps we also need to develop going beyond thoughts, learning to contemplate, as Ajahn Chah would say, contemplate in silence. We're still feeling, but we're not thinking in the same way as we were before. So what this means is slowing down. So if we want to access the faculties that enable us, give us the ability to meet the complexity of life, it is important that we learn to slow down. And then we have all of us to be aware, and we sat together for a few minutes in meditation this evening, the, the Buddha's encouragement for formal practice, yeah. daily life practice, Yes, daily life practice where we're learning from what's happening around us and and asking the right questions in the right way at the right time. Learning from everyday situations is, is, is terribly important, using our faculties in that way. That's daily life practice. But formal practice is where we turn the light of awareness inwards. This also is to be developed. Slowing down, slowing down the thinking withdrawing our light from, instead of going out through our ears and our eyes and our nose and our tongue and our bodies, sensing outwards, turning it around inwards and honing that down, purifying that so that it becomes a tool for investigation. Hmm. Before I came to live here, I, I, I lived in Devon and uh, we'd been invited to start the Devon Vihara and I was sent down there with uh, Ajahn Chandapalo he was a new monk in those days, and um, and uh, we lived down there for a couple of years. And and uh, one one summer, we decided that we would walk the full length of Devon. Now I'd driven from one end of Devon to the other. Our vihara was near Axminster, which is on the east end of Devon, and there was a meditation group on the west end of Devon in Plymouth. And so I'd be driven up and down the length of Devon quite regularly and um, many, many times. And I sort of felt I was familiar with Devon, kind of new Devon, until this year where Ajahn Chandapala and I decided to walk Devon, which is a lot slower. You know, it's not 60 miles an hour. When you're 70 miles an hour, whatever you drive. You know. When you slow down, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience where you regularly drive on a particular route somewhere and you go over and over, and then you walk that route. It's a totally different experience, isn't it? It's a totally different experience. It was similarly with the experience of our inner reality, our inner terrain. The Buddha wanted us to get to know this. because Actually, this is what defines our being. You know, the experiences we have, all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches that we experience, all human beings experience the same ones more or less, you know. Birds and weather and the, the stuff that's out there, the sounds, the food. And so but our experience of 
the outer world is all uniquely different. In other words, our inner realm is very, very different. And so we don't generally get, at school anyway, educated to become familiar with this. We don't know how to find our way around. We're lost a lot of the time when it comes to navigating this inner terrain. The spiritual dimension, conventional spiritual organizations used to inform people, educate human beings as to how to find their way. And there were myths and there were rituals and there were symbols. And But uh, a few decades ago, human beings kind of left the symbolic and what's called the irrational, in other words, if inferior aspect of human experience behind and went up into our heads and became super rational and and somewhere in that process we also became even more lost than we were before that. It's important that as we find we have this increase in material well-being and technology and and sophisticated education systems that we really own the fact that we're still confused. Although we're doing well on the outside, we're not doing so well on the inside. And so, once again, talking about how to hone down these inner faculties so that we become skilled and getting in touch with our ability. And part of that is slowing down. Coming to sense, coming to sense the activity of consciousness for ourselves, not just believe what we might read in some book or whatever or speculate about, but come to see it for ourselves. You know, what happens when you go on a meditation retreat for a week and you inhibit that outflow of energy? We don't eat whenever we want. We don't speak whenever we want. We hold back the light, turn the light of awareness inwards when we restrain it, not as a judgment, of the world, but out of interest and getting to know the inner world. What happens? What's the experience? When we learn to hold our attention in the right way, in a sensitive, feeling way, on a meditation object for an extended period of time. When we feel pain and we don't move immediately. When we want to scratch and we don't scratch immediately. When we want to follow a thought of an old resentment, but we don't follow it immediately. We hold back by way of investigation. What happens? Uh, So recognising we have this option, we can cultivate our faculties in this way, and part of the aim for this cultivation is to come to recognise that this consciousness, like what's going on outside there, is not the way it appears to be. The activity of consciousness is not what it looks like. The apparent reality is not necessarily the actuality. The sadness, disappointment and despair that all human beings feel is not what it looks like. So often it can look ultimate. Or the positive aspects, the joy, the happiness, the delight, the gratitude, these positive, radiant, beautiful qualities, the apparent reality of these conditions like happiness, pleasure, gratitude, inspiration, the apparent 
nature of these qualities is that if I cling to them, they're going to feel even better still. That's what they feel like. Or the desire, for instance, the desire to eat something more. We've all just been through Christmas. We know what chocolate, (laughs) etc. is like. You want some more chocolate, yeah? The desire, it looks like, it absolutely does look like, if I follow this, I'm going to feel better. Now, if we have a sense of what a feeling investigation is, if we have a sense of how to investigate this activity of consciousness in a slowed-down feeling way, not just thinking, not just thinking about, you know, the Four Noble Truths, his desire is the cause of suffering. Anybody can think that. You can read a book. In there. But when we let go of that, that thinking's got its place, of course. So we're learning, training to this feeling contemplation, this feeling investigation. As Ajahn Chah says in that talk that's printed in several places, what is contemplation? He explains there how we start off by using our coarse level of thinking, but then we let the thinking go still until it's... We're thinking in silence. We're feeling in silence. We're investigating in silence. And so, for instance, desire arises, and instead of just going upstairs into the attic and playing with our computer and analysing it, we stay with that. We inhibit that impulse. Stay with it and feel it. That feeling is not trustworthy. That's what we want to see. That feeling of this impossible problem is not trustworthy. That's what we want to feel. That's what we want to know. So, yes, we can analyse and speculate about the nature of the world and if only we did this and if only we did that and and so on, but there's no end to that. It doesn't get us past a certain point. It gives some rise to a certain sort of hope, but it's not a very refined sort of hope. It takes a lot of energy to maintain it. But if we get in touch with our feel, our capacity for feeling investigation, with our own ability to meet ourselves in our happiness and in our despair, yeah. meet it with interest, with ability, and investigate. Yeah. This feeling of frustration, this feeling of Fear. Mm. Is it really like that? Now, now, talking about it like this, of course, doesn't do it. But hopefully maybe it encourages us to take it on board that when we're moving around in the world and we come across something that looks like a snake or feels like a snake or we find we're just freaked out over some impression that we've received this is apparent reality this is apparent reality let's not let's not go for refuge to assumptions the buddha wanted us to inspect our assumptions inspect our beliefs not to cling to the beliefs and the beliefs we have about ourselves and about the world the beliefs we have about me the beliefs we have about the future a few years ago, I was listening to some talks by a, a well-known um, spiritual teacher in America who had some very good things to say, but he kept coming up with this, this notion of how we're all evolving into something more wonderful. And so I respectfully wrote a letter, and 
a mutual friend passed it on to him, and I, I asked him, so where do you get this idea that everything's getting better? And he got back to me and said, well, it's better than saying everything's getting worse. Uh, well, but that's not, that's not reality, you know, that's a spin. And what the Buddha wanted us to do was we don't have to put a spin on reality. Life is uncertain. If we don't know that it's all getting better, we don't have to default with some sort of a story that it's getting better because it's better than saying it's getting worse. Falling into despair of saying it's getting worse, well, that's not very clever either. But we can, we can pick up the approximation to what the Buddha called the middle way. The Buddha realized the middle way. He realized a reality, a dimension, a perspective. He was abiding in a perspective on reality that meant there was no suffering. We have an approximation of the middle way, as the Buddha described it. We can embrace this approximation. We don't have to default to saying it's all getting better or it's all getting worse. We don't have to default to fantasies. We can say, well, I don't know. And feel the insecurity of that. I don't know how to solve the sewage problem, but I'll stay open to the possibility. I don't know how to solve the Syria problem, but stay open, feel the despair, feel the frustration, without defaulting to the habits of clinging, clinging to false securities, clinging to the familiar feeling of I know what I'm doing. If we've got the ability to conduct feeling investigation, even that familiar feeling of I know what I'm doing is something we can look into and maybe start to loosen our grasp of. There's an awareness of the feeling of familiar security. The awareness is a refuge, not clinging to the feeling of security which we were brought up with and we'd like to go back to again. So the hopefulness that the Buddha spoke about is this possibility of discovering that we can let go all of, of all confused reactions to the apparent chaos of life. It wasn't that the Buddha didn't experience chaos. It wasn't that the Buddha liked chaos. You know, some people think the Buddha must have, you know, or any spiritually evolved person lives in a state of bliss the whole time. That's another naive, unexpected fantasy. And the Buddha talks about the frustrations, you know, there's that discourse where he talks about these irritating monks that he, he was living with. They were all squabbling and carrying on, and he didn't want to put up with it. So he went off to the forest to live in solitude because it was much nicer. So people said, what's wrong? The Buddha wasn't, you know, he was suffering. So no, the Buddha wasn't suffering. But that doesn't mean to say that he, he found squabbling monks agreeable. The Buddha didn't find squabbling monks agreeable. You don't have to find everything agreeable. The conditioned being, including the Buddha's conditioned body, found certain circumstances disagreeable. But that didn't mean to say that he suffered. He had pain, like he had pain in his back when he got old, but he didn't suffer because there's no clinging, there's no identification with the conditioning. Because there's no clinging, there's no identification with the conditioning, the Buddha didn't suffer. But he did have pain. So we're not talking about getting rid of dukkha. We're not talking about getting rid of pain. We're not talking about getting rid of frustrating, frustration. Life is frustrating. But that's just so. That's just like, you know, in spring the flowers come and then they die on you and then they stink. And you've got to cut them and get rid of them. 
That's just life. You know, this body, well, you know, a few years ago it was quite fun. Now, not, it's not so much fun anymore. And it's probably the future is not going to get any better. You know, that's, but that's just life. And that is, according to Buddhist terminology, dukkha. However you translate that word. Translating that word as suffering seems a little bit not very adequate, really. But we have to study these things and find out for ourselves. I tend to translate it as frustration. But what do we do with it? What did the Buddha do with those arguing monks? He left them and went away. But that doesn't mean to say that he was suffering. He just found it disagreeable. So the idea that somehow our spiritual work is going to free us from disagreeable circumstances, that we're going to live a life of bliss, that's another fantasy and that's not what we're aiming for but the hopefulness that is on offer in the buddha's teaching and all true spiritual disciplines is that we can study and start to hopefully recognize that we have these spiritual faculties within us that can be honed down and the way we hone them down is not just through speculating about them not just through thinking about them learning to go beyond the thinking learn to go beyond the speculating and with hopefully a quieter mind, feel our way into a conscious relationship with them. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.